some folks joining us here in person, others still joining us online. There are no children's programming, no other uh, teens programming. And so it looks like for now, it looks like we'll be in this phase for uh, a while, for the time being at least. Um, and I want to just say, uh, for those of you who are here and obviously those of you online as well, please remain vigilant. Please continue to practice uh, health and safety measures. The virus uh, is still among us and it is still lethal. Uh, in fact, um, just this week, just yesterday, a longtime family friend of mine and of my family uh, passed away uh, right here at LSUS Hospital, um, a man who would not be considered in any at-risk category, the way that we talk about at-risk categories. This is a um, uh, healthy fella, um, and uh, he came down with symptoms a week ago and passed away yesterday of COVID or the disease caused by COVID-19. Um, and so please remain vigilant. Um, and I just want to even say it this way, maybe to say it a little bit more strongly. This reopening transition that's occurring in our community and in communities all across um, our country, you should know that this reopening transition is really more about our collective impatience than it is about any progress we've made with regard to the virus. Um, the cases are still climbing, people are still dying. In some parts around the country, uh, known cases are even increasing. And so all that to say, it's still among us, um, it's still killing people, and so please continue to be vigilant and practice uh, safety measures. Amen? All right. Uh, so with that, we are continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer that we've been looking at uh, throughout. Actually, I think this began right about the time our quarantine began. So this is part eight, so that gives you a pretty good marker of where we've uh, been since quarantine, about eight weeks. So what we've been doing in this study series, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, is that we've been going through the Lord's Prayer really line by line, phrase by phrase. And so today we reach the end of the prayer. I'm thinking next week we'll still be in this series because I'm thinking we need to do a wrap-up wrap up thing to kind of put it all back together. You know, it's like a, there's a double-edged sword, like, <clears throat> I think... The advantage of slowing down and doing phrase by phrase is that we get to take our time and meditate on each of these phrases. So there's an advantage there. The disadvantage is you lose the, the synthesis of how it all works together, you know. Uh, and so next week we'll have to come back and, and do that and maybe reappreciate how all this comes together. Um, so here we go. Here's where we are. Um, the last line of the Lord's Prayer. We're using it from Matthew's version. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Well, that's the New Revised Standard Version. Here's the King James Version that may be more familiar to some. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you have those varieties in translation because this is difficult to translate. Um, and so you have those, those variations, and so we'll try to deal with some of that uh, this morning. Uh, but right off the bat, like you take that phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And right off the bat, there's a question like, hey, wait, wait, time out, time out, time out. <laughs> Are you saying that it was like possible that God might have led us into temptation so that we had to ask for him not to? Like, how weird would that be, right? Like, like if you think of temptation, the urge, the impulse 
to commit some immoral act or some act of evil, right? If that's how we're defining temptation and we have to ask God, don't lead us into temptation. It's like, what kind of God would do that anyway? I mean, wouldn't that be like maniacal, sinister deity kind of thing? Like, what kind of God are y'all praying to? That's like bizarre, okay? So in fact, and in fact, um, it's worth asking that question because uh, listen to what, what James says later, the, the epistle of James. Um, he says this, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. What's it? My own desire. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. That's a vivid uh, picture. So what do we do with this? Like we have here in the one instance, we have from the Lord's Prayer uh, a, a petition to God. Don't lead us into temptation, which causes all kinds of sparks to fly in our head. Like what's going on with that? And then we have this explicit writing uh, from the Apostle James um, uh, that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone by evil. So what do we do with this? Like, like I just want to say, this is for real. This is one of many instances when we're studying these sacred texts where we really are, I want to say compelled, but we're really, I think, ultimately, we're invited to get in here and wrestle with these kinds of questions. Like, what is going on, you know? Um, there's a, a Jewish theologian named John Levinson, and um, he is in dialogue with Christians uh, frequently in, in, in public, and I mean in a supportive way, not in a debate kind of way, but he's a very thoughtful guy. And, and uh, one of the things that I've heard uh, Levinson say is that for many Christians, the Bible tends to be thought of as a message to be proclaimed. And he says, but for the Jewish people, it's not like that. For the Jewish people, the Bible is a sacred text to be wrestled with. I think it's really thoughtful. And here is one of many instances where we get to do it. We get to do that. Like, what's going on here? So today, I just want to be very candid with you and say, what I'm thinking here today is that we're going to wrestle with this. Like, like what does this mean for us to pray? And, and again, some of us grew up praying this over and over again, you know. Uh, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not, like, you know, kid, I can remember, you know, growing up, looking at the screen, looking at the, the document, you know, lead us not into temptation. Like, what is going on in our heads when we pray this prayer? So we're going to wrestle a little bit today, not like two young brothers on the living room carpet, but we're going to wrestle um, with this text. So to start, let's back up and actually back, back way up. Uh, and let me just say this so that we can reappreciate this broader reality. Please recognize that the Bible, um, the story of the Bible, uh, is that God is on the side of the underdog. Like that's the big, that's the big story. Whoever's on the bottom, whoever it is that's on the bottom, 
those are the people that this God is with, right? Um, it's often said that history is written by the victors, um, and that's almost entirely true, uh, except for the Bible. <laughs> uh, the Bible was written mostly by the losers, um, socially speaking, culturally speaking, even economically speaking. The story of the Jewish people is mostly the story of a people um, who have been mostly on the bottom, on the bottom economically, on the bottom in terms of you know, world powers, and so on. They had their flashes of winning, like the escape from Egypt and maybe the reign of King David. Uh, but those brief moments in their history are far outweighed by centuries that the Jewish people spent on the bottom, on the outside, being ruled over by others or being exiled uh, from their own land and, and things such as that. And so most then, most then of their sacred writings, which is what we call the Old Testament, um, emerge from the bottom. Most of the material in the scriptures emerges from a people who are on the bottom of everything and yet still shot through with this um, relentless hope kind of thing. So you, got that, you have that blend. And this pattern actually continues in the New Testament writings as well. Jesus was born among peasants within an occupied and oppressed culture. Jesus lived his life um, and most of his ministry among peasants, people who were being actively oppressed by the boot of Caesar and the Roman Empire, many of whom were starving. Many had lost their families. They had lo I mean, they had lost their family land. Some had perhaps had lost family members, perhaps through debt slavery. Scholars estimate that the tax rate for the people that Jesus lived his life with, the tax rate was somewhere around 80, perhaps 90% taxation when you put it all, put it all together. So, so Jesus spent his life among the people on the bottom. He delivered the Sermon on the Mount to this, a people, this, this, people in this circumstance. So when you take that into account, I want to invite you to ask yourself a question. What then would this petition mean when heard among those who are on the bottom? What would this petition mean in that context? Lead us not into temptation. Don't answer out loud just yet. Hold on to your answer because we're going to do a little more looking before we take the next step and try to answer. Um, believe it or not, you may be surprised to hear that among the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of these use the exact same Greek word that's used here in this petition of the Lord's Prayer for temptation that is also translated the time of trial, same word. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them use that same Greek word later in their telling of the Jesus story, and they all three use the word in the exact same scenario in their telling of the exact same scenario. I'll read them, and you can, uh, you can guess where this occurs in their Jesus story. Matthew 26, verse 41, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. That's that word. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, some of you already know the context in which that was stated. Hear this from Mark. 
Mark 14. He, that's Jesus, he came and found them sleeping, them, that's the disciples, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. There's that word. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here it is from Luke, and it's actually uh, used twice by Luke, but it's in the same moment, same vignette. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 22, he, Jesus, came out uh, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to him, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Same word. Later in that same chapter, when he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Same word. Uh, you've already guessed the, the circumstance from where this is found. This is, this is um, uh, on Holy Thursday night, right? This is in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to Jesus' arrest. Um, this is when Jesus urges his disciples to stay alert, stay fresh, stay vigilant so that you don't come into the time of trial. Jesus says this to his disciples in this, on this night, in this moment, when what's about to happen is that Jesus is about to be arrested, having committed no crime, an arrest that would kickstart a plot that would ultimately lead to his public ex execution, even though he's completely innocent. So let me just ask you to reflect a little bit. Try to put yourself in their shoes, the shoes of the disciples. If this were you, if you were one of Jesus' disciples, and your friend and mentor was about to be ambushed unfairly, unjustly, without having committed any wrongdoing, try to put yourself in that position. Try to feel what you would feel. Try to put yourself in their shoes. Um, my friend, who's done nothing wrong, is about to be ambushed, arrested. It's unjust. It's unfair. It's not right. Try to feel what you would feel and realize that that feeling that you're feeling is being described as temptation. It gives it a little bit different ring to it. So let me, let me just ask you point blank. In that situation, in, when you're feeling those feelings, what is the temptation? The answer is easy. It's the temptation to strike back. It, it's the temptation to take matters in my own hands, to lash out, to meet fire with fire, to meet uh, unjust opposition with vengeance. That's the temptation, it's the temptation to respond to violence with opposing violence. It's the temptation to do actually exactly what one of Jesus' disciples did in the moment of Jesus' arrest. And all four gospel writers include this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that one of Jesus' disciples, he's unnamed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I think it's John that names it, it was Peter. At the moment of Jesus' arrest, Peter took a sword and cut off someone's ear. His name was Malchus, the gospel writer John 
identifies him as Malchus, a servant of the high priest. It's the temp- it's that. That's the temptation. That's what's being described as temptation. Everybody. The temptation we're talking about here is the temptation to respond to whatever you want to call it, injustice, etc., with some form of violence to strike back, to lash out, to punish in return. Now, back to the prayer. So, when Jesus teaches us to pray, do not lead us into the time of trial, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Consider this. Jesus is giving his followers a poetic, well, prayer slash confession, a vision statement that says we are, we are collectively committing ourselves to refuse vengeance as a means of responding to injustice. Do not lead us into temptation, the temptation to strike back. In other words, this would be then a poetic announcement of exactly the kind of ethic that Jesus insisted for his disciples at Gethsemane. What I want you to do, what I want you to do, he says at Gethsemane, pray, stay alert so that you don't enter into temptation, so that you don't defend me with violent opposition. And, and, when read this way, this would be a poetic announcement of exactly what Jesus himself demonstrated on Good Friday. Think about it. When Jesus was arrested, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and ultimately executed, he never retaliated with vengeance against that injustice. Instead, he responded with only love. And also, think about this, during Jesus' day, we know that there were plenty of good, faithful Jewish people who actually advocated for holy retribution against Caesar and against Roman oppression of Israel. One of Jesus' disciples um, is called a zealot, and we know from, uh, we know from history uh, that the zealots were a sect of Jewish people um, who wanted the Jewish people to rise up in violent revolt against Rome. Even on Good Friday morning, you may remember uh, the moment when Pilate gave the mob a choice. But uh, you know, I'm going to release. I'm going to re- release a prisoner. Do you want me to release Jesus, or do you want me to release? Remember the other guy's name, Barabbas. You want me to release Barabbas? And of course, the mob said, "You know, give us Barabbas." And we learn in that in that account that the reason Barabbas was in Pilate's prison is because he had been arrested for being a part of a violent revolt against Rome. So Barabbas was sympathetic to this ideology of the zealots, not because he was a bad guy, because he was devoted to God. And that was his perspective. So we know that this thinking was out there in the ether, so to speak, in the environment. We need to match fire with fire, violence with violence. We need to match oppression with vengeance. That mode of thinking is saturated in the social, you know, in the swimming pool that everybody's swimming in. And Jesus is speaking to these beaten down, at the bottom, suffering peasants. And he's saying, don't choose the way of vengeance. Don't choose the way of retribution. Don't choose the way of payback. Hmm. What about us? Are there times, are there times when we face 
whatever you want to call it, hostility, unfairness, injustice, like just BS committed against us. Are there times when we face that? You bet. Even, even as, and I'm looking around the room here today, um, even as most of us are among the privileged subset of a privileged nation among the nations of the earth today, even still, um, from, from time to time at least, um, we experience the time of trial, the time of temptation, the temptation to strike back, to lash out, to meet fire with fire, to rise up and take an eye for an eye, you know, that kind of, that kind of thinking. So what then, read this way, does this poetic petition, announcement, confession, however you want to think of it, read this way, what then does this petition in the Lord's Prayer, what does it embed into our souls? Yeah, when, when that impulse comes, we're not going to do it. We're not going to follow through. We're not going to lash out. We're not going to strike back. Sure, those times are going to come. But our heart's desire, our confession, our proclamation, and while we don't want to find ourselves in that spot, when we do, we're not going to follow through. When that burning impulse to take vengeance begins to emerge deep on the inside of us, we're not going to do it. We're not going to seek retribution, meet force with force. No, we're going to take a higher road. We're going to choose instead the way of love. We will not contribute to the endless cycles of escalating violence that's destroying the world and everyone in it. That is essentially what we're saying when we make this petition. In order to defeat the monsters, we're not going to become a monster. That's the way Bono said it. <laughs> and now, think about the but, right? Like this is a line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is how the but makes sense, but deliver us from evil, right? Because just to back up, if we're thinking of temptation as like, like we said before, like, like kind of the generic impulse to do something bad, right? Uh, the but in that, I just want to say flat out, the but wouldn't make sense if that's the way we're thinking of temptation, because there's nothing in scripture that tells us that God is going to step in and determine anyone's choices or anyone's actions and, and cause someone to choose the good. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. In fact, it says the opposite. That's what we just read from James, right? That sin comes from our own desires when we follow through on them, right? So, so, so the but wouldn't even make sense if we take temptation to mean kind of the generic impulse to choose something, uh, something bad. But, however, if, if we take temptation to mean the urge to lash out and meet violence with violence, now the but makes sense because what we're saying, instead of finding ourselves in that place, the urge to lash out, we're saying you deliver us from evil. We are going to deeply rely upon you. We are going to refuse the way of retaliation, and instead we're going to deeply entrust ourselves to you for you to deliver us from evil or from the evil one. In other words, Jesus is giving us a shared confession that we will choose the way of love in the face of injustice and all the while we will deeply rely on God to be our deliverer rather than taking matters into our own hands. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. But still, it's a 
it's an honest question to say even still, why would we direct this as a petition to God? <laughs> I mean, it's still kind of a funny thing. I mean, even with this more pointed understanding that I'm suggesting this morning, even with this more pointed understanding of what is meant by the time of trial, it's worth asking, why would we need to ask God not to lead us into a, tem- into a situation where we feel the impulse to respond with vengeance or violence or retribution, etc.? It's a good question, and here's my best answer. I'll say it this way, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Um, the temptations that your God leads you into are the ones that you're li- least likely to recognize as temptation. See, when your understanding is that it is your God who is informing your retribution, then you're, it's impossible to see that vengeance as actually being your own vengeance rather than God's. In other words, in other words, when people use God's name to justify all kinds of violence, that's what's being addressed here. Look at John 16. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. Jesus says that for the future of his disciples. And of course, we saw that, we see that play out in the book of Acts and even beyond. But this is also exactly what happened on Good Friday. The Jewish establishment conspired to have Jesus executed. Uh, and they were convinced that they were doing God a favor. They were acting out of their misguided but sincere religious conviction. It's exactly what we see um, in young Saul of Tarsus in those early chapters of the book of Acts and his hate-filled rampage against uh, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who, who actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was tracking them down, violently persecuting these Jewish worshipers of Jesus, not because Saul was a bad guy, but precisely because he was a good, devoted, religious guy. And that's how he understood what God is like. And so in terms of our study today, Saul was led into temptation because of his, at the time, understanding of what God was like. So we could say from Saul that from Saul's perspective, God led him into temptation. The temptation to violently retaliate against these Jewish worshipers of Jesus. Does everybody see it? And so here, Jesus is saying, and he is giving us this poetic confession that God, the one true God, is not, in fact, a God who leads us into this kind of retributive temptation. Instead, he is, in fact, the God who is revealed to us in Christ, who on Good Friday responded to hideous injustice with only love, with non-retaliation, a refusal to strike back, and instead a dogged trust in God to deliver him from this evil or from the evil one, the evil that was being persecuted, perpetrated against him. Man, that's some strong medicine right there. So here's a way to unpack this 
condensed line, this condensed poetic line in this prayer. So we back up from the beginning. Our Father in heaven. And as we talked about some weeks ago, we are addressing God as the divine householder of the world house. And then we go through your kingdom come, your will be done. We're petitioning you to reorder the world, change change the order of the way the world is so that the world looks like a well-run household of a compassionate parent, right? So we're talking about reordering the world. And then we go through bread and we go through debt. And now we're saying, we acknowledge that you are not the kind of father that leads us into lashing out and retaliating against the junk perpetrated against us. You are not the kind of father who urges his children to meet fire with fire. That's what this petition is about. But sadly, isn't it true, and here's where we kind of reflect a little bit, isn't it true, though, on the flip side that we have, in fact, seen the alternative and all-too-human pattern throughout human history where we arrive at this kind of temptation moment, we assume uh, something like God has brought us here or God wants us to, you know, battle our way out or whatever, and then we take matters into our own hands and we justify it using the name of God. So, for example, um, let me just say, it is in these kinds of temptations where we are least likely to see our actions as actually evil, just as we saw with the Apostle Paul and others. So, a little bit closer to home. If, for example, I believe that God is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored because his truth is marching on, if I believe that's what's going on here, then it's nearly impossible for me to recognize my actions as actually the evil destruction of human lives, even if you believe you were on the right side of the Civil War. Those, of course, were the lyrics from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, a song that sustained the Union uh, Army during the American Civil War. Um, and, of course, I've given that one example, but you know this is, this is actually the story throughout history. This is the way... You know, and, and right now, obviously, we're in a place in our culture at this moment where things are really tense um, around racial injustice um, and so on. It's, it's as if, it's as if here in America, um, our, our two, our twin original sins um, are not only with us, but perhaps even growing stronger in their destructiveness among us. Those two twin original sins, of course, being the slaughter of the Native American people and the oppressive slavery against African American people. Um, I, uh, and, and, of course, those, those, two, those two twin, what we, what we see so clearly as the two twin original sins of our culture, both of those programs were sustained by uh, uh, using God uh, as a defense, using the scripture and so on. Both of those programs were defended. 
using biblical material, a certain understanding of God, manifest destiny, whatever you want to call it. Um, this week, yesterday, actually, um, my family and I, we marched in downtown with the protest, with, with the Black Lives Matter movement. We were there making a statement against racial injustice, systemic racism, police brutality at the center of this particular instance, but really that's a, that's a part of, and it's significant, we have to deal with it, but it's a part of the, maybe the broader um, picture of systemic racism that continues in our society. Um, this has got to, this has got to be fixed. We have to change this. And I just want to say, man, the experience for me, it was glorious. It was riveting to me, like, like to the core. I mean, I was deeply moved. I'm still shook, honestly. Um, the presentations were very well done, very illuminating to me. Sometimes it was hard to hear the speakers who were speaking, but from what I could hear, uh, it was illuminating. And these, these people process their own life experience right here in our own culture and the injustice that's been perpetrated against them and they've had to endure. Um, it's, it's, it'll shake you to the core. So, so think about it this way then. If I believe that my privilege um, is my divinely given birthright, then it's almost impossible for me to recognize as evil the ways in which I support and sustain the status quo. You see that? I, I almost can't recognize it. Because if I believe that my privilege is divinely given, then I'm going to support the status quo, and I'm going to consider that my own cooperation with the divine. And the fact of the matter is, the status quo is killing people. The, the wealth gap between black and white is increasing. It's not getting better. The education gap between, between African-American people and, and white people is, the gap is increasing. It's not decreasing. It's destroying lives. And so, and so, but if I see that my privilege is divinely given, then for me to do nothing, to remain silent, is to support the status quo. It is to contribute to the increase of injustice. And in that instance, I would be using the divine to rationalize my support of the status quo. Are we tracking? So lead us not into temptation, but you deliver us from evil. See, this prayer, this prayer, you think about the, the two halves. It begins with a focus on the divine, Abba, Father, the, the, the divine householder of the world house. We want you to make your name holy. Make it so that, so make it so that anyone could look anywhere in your world and esteem you as the householder of the world house. Um, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. We want the world to be reordered around your heart, your character. So the first half is very, very focused on, on the divine. It's all about you, you, you. And then the second half, we move into three very practical uh, expressions of that. Bread, death, and temptation. But these two halves, they're, they're twin halves. This is, this is the divine and the human 
coming together, reordering the world to look more like the heart of God. You are not a God who leads us into the temptation to meet violence with violence. You are not a God who leads us to a place to lash out when we face injustice. You are a God who leads us to respond with a new way of ordering the world, the way of love. Everybody see it? Everybody got it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen? Let me pray and we'll sing a closing song. Father.